0: church in the snowstorm he uh, his parents stayed home he wasn't able to make it to his regular church so he just found a little church where they're worshiping God and kind of came on in and uh, and it was a church like this it was just a handful of people on this snowy day and he sat somewhere in the back probably right, right near you Flint that's probably where he would have sat and, you know, the pastor couldn't be there that Sunday. It was the past. you know, the pastor was snowed in. And so one of the deacons of the church got up at the last minute and was asked to bring the Word of God. And, uh, you know, he just basically repeated the same thing. And he got the impression that this young man in the back was a visitor and maybe didn't know Christ. And so most of his attention seemed to focus on him. It was kind of a one-on-one sermon. And... uh he asked the young man, "Why, why aren't you trusting in Christ? Don't leave here today without trusting in Christ." And he pled with the man, to the young man, to, to come and become a Christian. And at that time, Charles Spurgeon wasn't a Christian, but he was saved. In the midst of a snowstorm, in the midst of a you know just a handful of people being present, in the midst of not a fancy preacher up front simply bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He called the unsaved. There were just a few that were there to come to Christ. And little did he know that Charles Haddon Spurgeon was back there, and that was the day that by God's grace, he came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I got a call from Kyle and uh, realizing there wasn't a lot of time to, you know, kind of felt like that deacon, you know, at the last minute you get the call and decided to move forward with our Study through the book of uh, Romans and moved into Romans chapter 10. So I won't be preaching on 1 Thessalonians, was our passage today, uh, chapter 5. But I will be opening uh, with you God's word in Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 1. I was tempted not to go there this Sunday. for a couple reasons, but the one reason that I was pulled back to this passage is the story of Spurgeon came to my mind. And I thought, could it be on a snowy, cold Sunday morning in March here in Cody, Wyoming, there could be one or two people that have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he brought them here this day, maybe brought you here on this day. And so, as I read through this passage on Saturday, you know, I read through it with a heart of uh, wanting to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for that very reason. And uh, it's not, we can't ever hear the gospel enough as believers. And so, this is for all of us, especially as we come to the Lord's table in just a minute. But I'm, I'm speaking to those of you here today, particularly. Unlike this deacon, I don't know who the saved and the unsaved are. He must have a discerning spirit uh, that day. But could it be this to be the day where the Lord would take the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ from Romans chapter 10, take it and apply it to your heart, and someone, someones might leave through those doors a new person having been born from above. That's my prayer for as we open up. Romans chapter 10. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we open up your word, uh, seeking, Lord, you to unfold our hearts like you did Lydia along the riverside on the Sabbath day so she could attend and understand the very things that Paul brought to her and how she was awakened and brought to life and was saved on that, that Sabbath day. Lord, we believe in the same spirit that saves just like you saved Lydia, just like you saved uh, Spurgeon, we believe that your spirit is alive and active and bringing new birth to anyone here today who's without Christ. And Lord, without a, a lot of fancy preparation, simply looking to your word today, Lord, would you take the simplicity of this message and use it to turn hearts to you for eternity? And for all of us, Lord, as we look back at the work of grace you've done in our lives, we're so thankful that we're here worshiping you as your redeemed children. Bless this day in Christ's name. Amen. So in Romans chapter 10, Paul opens up the new chapter this way. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. I was thinking there's probably no greater passage that I could preach with a hard attitude of what I just shared with you. Than this opening passage in Romans chapter 10. Uh, There's no greater message that I could preach to you today than the message from Romans chapter 10. Uh, and And I'm not saying this lightly. I believe this passage has the heart of the gospel, it has the power to save souls. You know, I'm not using superlatives to somehow get your interest into this passage, but uh, the reason why I say this is because I really believe it. I believe today's passage answers the most important question that a person could ever ask themselves in this life. That's pretty, that's a, sta- that's a strong statement. It's a passage that I, I believe corrects the biggest mistakes people make regarding their soul in this life. You say, well, what's the important question? What's the important question that Paul's asking and answering in this passage? Uh, It's how you can have right standing with God. How do I have right standing with God? Can you think of anything more practical to know and not only know, but to respond to, then the question, how might I have right standing with God? Putting in a Christian vernacular, how might I be saved? That might be your most important question, you might say, but Don, it's not mine. It's not my, my question. I've got more pressing questions than that in my life, than how might I be saved. In fact, I, I, I'm thinking more importantly about who am I going to marry? I'm thinking more importantly, uh, you know, who's going to win the March Madness? Who's the best team in the United States today? That's more pressing to me. Or my next job, where am I going to work? Where's my source of income going to come from? You see, if if this passage will answer those questions, I agree with you. This is an important passage. But uh, notice what I said. Today's passage answers the most important question in your life. I didn't say whether you're asking it or not. It's just simply a fact. This passage, one through four, will answer the most important question of your life. It's not what you think that question is, it's what God thinks that question is. It's not what you perceive to be the greatest interest of your life but what God is telling you is the most important interest of your life. Because, you see, sometimes we don't perceive what is important, and we don't take things that are important as important. Sometimes we never get around to asking the most important questions in our life because we're too busy asking questions about who's going to win out on on the March Madness when it's all said and done. Marriage is important, yes. Basketball games are important nature of your employment is important. But God has placed you on this planet for a very, very short period of time. And it's whizzing by. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, very, very quickly. In fact, in a few short years, your life, all of our lives are going to come to an end. Uh, March Madness is for March. Marriage might be for Tomorrow. Your job might be for next week, but your soul is for eternity. Is there any greater question that you could consider than to ask yourself how your sins might be forgiven between you and God? That the question might be asked, not only that, what must I do to have and to inherit and have a confidence that I have eternal life? To me, that's the most important question any one of us could ask and answer in this life. And it's the answer to this question that we're going to see in today's passage. I believe it's an important question because it's not only the biggest, it's the most common mistake that people make in this life. They fail to ask the question about their soul. They'll ask questions about everything else and neglect their eternal soul. Those who are concerned about their souls face two roads. Our Lord was very clear in mapping out your future. There's a broad road and a narrow road. That's pretty simple. If you want to put it in another vernacular, there's the wide road, my way, or there's a narrow road, God's way. And every one of us is on one of those two paths, one of those two roads, And what's interesting about the wide road, the the great freeway that dead ends into construction and ultimate destruction is this. It's paved with religion. Did you realize that? The broad road that goes to destruction is paved with religion. There's religious people all over that highway. And not only that, not only are they just religious people, there's professing religion. Christian religious people who are on that highway. And not only that, there's zealous people on that highway. People that are all excited about religion. And, and uh, you see their zeal in their church attendance. Maybe the way they pray prayers and they shout hallelujah, dance around in circles a few times, and you'll find zeal. It's also a road that's paved with sincerity. Sincerity. A lot of the people that are on the road that's going to lead to destruction are sincere. They believe that they're zealous. They believe they they love God. They believe they're very religious. They believe that God's going to accept them as they are. But as we're going to see, it's the road that leads to death, and many there be that find that way. Jesus described another road. It's much more narrow than the broad road, it's just that little pathway. But it, it it leads to life eternal life it's built on the cross of our lord jesus christ it's paid with the blood of the lord jesus himself many are ignorant on this on on of this road and i was thinking about that i met a couple from uh, from uh england a couple years ago and they were on vacation <laughs> and so they said well we're looking for this little path, and it goes to uh, Red Lodge. I said a little path that goes to Red Lodge. And they had gone on their GPS, and they found a little dirt road that actually goes off the bench from, from Powell and goes to the back roads and makes it all the way to Red Lodge. And, I, and, and it always struck me because they wanted to go that way. I said, nobody goes that way. I mean, I, I, I didn't even know it was there. And they said, oh, no, we want to go this back road this little path to Red Lodge. And in many ways, that's what this narrow pathway is all about. It's a narrow road that a lot of people just go right by the entranceway and just blow on by and and just ignore it altogether. And they miss out on the way that leads to everlasting life. This is why I believe that there's probably no greater truth that I could preach to you this, uh, this snowy morning, Lord's Day morning. From this pulpit, then Romans chapter ten verses one through four. And it's my prayer is that God would not only answer the most important question facing your life, but you will come to realize that is the most important question facing your life, and that you'll see in this passage there is an answer to that question that, that not only brings forgiveness, but if it's followed with a heart of belief brings everlasting life. Now, we just came out of Romans chapter 9. That's, that's the mountaintop, right? I mean, that's the mountaintop of maybe the Bible, but it's definitely the mountaintop of the book of Romans, that uh, God is sovereign. He, he's a God who rules over all of His creation. He chooses those whom He's going to save. We went through the whole doctrine of election. And uh, if you're the person watching on YouTube, let me just emphasize... <laughs> He is a sovereign God, and he does choose whom He's going to save, and he rules over all of his creation. And when you come to chapter 10, it's interesting, because here he has just told us that God is sovereign, He's chosen the Gentiles unto salvation, many of the Gentiles, and he's passed over many of the Jews. And notice where verse 1 picks up in chapter 10. Paul begins to pray. And so we're going to look at is some of the means that God uses when he sovereignly saves a soul. So, for example, God is sovereign, right? He's chosen before the foundation of the world those whom he's going to save. We believe that. But not only that, then, then comes the day and the time where he calls, faith comes, belief comes, and ultimately a person is justified. But what Paul begins to remind us of in chapter 10 is this. This all just doesn't parachute down from heaven. God uses ordinary means to save his elect. And he begins in chapter 10 to tell us what some of those ordinary means are. And one of them is prayer. Look how he opens in verse 1 Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, who's them? The Jews is that they may be saved. He's just said God has sovereignly passed over the Jews. He's just said that he's sovereignly chosen many of the Gentiles. And now what does he do? He, he, he avails himself a, a of one of the means of grace. And now what he does is he begins to pray for the very ones that he, he says, at least as far as I know at this point, God has chosen not to save. If God is sovereign, if he's the one who, who saves, uh, Pray. It almost seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? You you know, you say, well, God has not chosen this person. I'm going to pray for him. But also it's, it's more than counterintuitive. It's really intuitive because who else can save that person? If God is sovereign and he has all the power to save a soul, why wouldn't I cry out to God in prayer, asking him to do what only he can do, and that is to save those who are lost? By the way, that should motivate us to be a praying church and praying for those who are without Christ. It should motivate us as parents to pray for our children. I mean, do you think for a moment, because you brought your kids to church today, that's going to bring their their hearts to Christ? I mean, God might use that. But you also have to realize that it's going to take a miracle in the heart of every one of your children to come to saving faith in Christ. And that miracle is, is the sovereign work of God. It's the empowering, life giving work of the Holy Spirit who comes and brings the new birth and brings life. And so, as parents, where should we be? Well, I take them to church and I do this and I do that, and we have family worship. And yeah, those are good. But are you praying for your children? As a church, are we praying for our neighbors and our friends and and the people we work with? And are we praying for our loved ones? And are we praying for our community? Notice who Paul's praying for here. He's not praying for Aunt Susie, who's Jewish, to come to faith in Christ, although he might be. He's not telling us that, though. But what he is doing is praying for all the Jews. I'm praying for my people. I'm praying for a nation. And that should encourage us to broaden our prayers out beyond just the ones we know. To our city pray for the people of Cody pray for the people of, of Wyoming pray for the people of the United States and beyond there's a second means of grace that we're not going to get into today that I, was, I want us to see that he's availing himself of in other words a means by which people come to Christ we're going to see it next time we ever we get together here in Romans 10 is preaching uh we're gonna this is the great preaching passage of the chapter. Uh, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. How are they gonna hear unless there's a Preacher. And so there's one of the means of grace that God uses for calling in his elect. We have prayer, we have preaching. And even though he knew that God was sovereignly rejecting the Jews he availed himself of the means, crying out to God for their salvation. So the doctrines of grace should really spark greater prayers and greater zeal in the area of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's our question that I want us to look at next is, why does Paul pray for the lost Jews? If they're not chosen, why would he pray for them? And because he sees as he looks out at the Jews around him, himself being one, that there's a problem with them, it has to do with their zeal. For notice how it's verse two, for now it goes in the grounds or the reasons for his statement that the why he's praying for the for the Jews, based on these grounds, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's why I'm praying for them. I bear them witness. And I know firsthand. I'm testifying. this isn't my feelings. This is an unction that I have. I'm testifying what I see, what I know, not only about them, but about me as a Jew, and that is this: They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And I know this, Paul's saying firsthand. What is it that he's witnessing to? that they are a zealous people. Can't, he can't argue with that. They are all about religion. I know the word zeal there, zealon. It's, uh, it's a word that simply means a, an excitement of mind, a fervor of spirit. I was trying to think of a contemporary word that's used in, the, in our vernacular. I've heard Matt use this once in a while, lit. These people are lit for Christ, or not for Christ, but for the gospel but not the saving gospel of the way of God, by way of his righteousness. We're going to see that uh, the zeal that the Jews had was a, was a bad zeal. There's a zeal that Jesus had that was a good zeal. Not all zeal is good. But they were, they were enthusiastic. They were enthusiastic about God. They were enthusiastic about worship. They were enthusiastic about uh, law-keeping. I mean, it wasn't like, I wonder how many dollars I should put in the offering plate back there. It was like, well, listen, I've got these little seeds. and They're very small, and I, I need a pair of pliers to do this, but actually maybe a, tweezers would help, but I need to divide those into one-tenth so that when I go to worship God, I'm tithing down. I, I'm zealous. I'm all in. I'm going to tithe the seeds that I have. That's how zealous they were. They were were zealous in their worship. They they were zealous in their law-keeping. But there was a problem with their zeal, and that is it was was misdirected. And that's why Paul put, but it wasn't according to knowledge. All excited, but not according to knowledge. In other words, religious zeal can be a good thing if it's properly directed by truth. But zeal that's misdirected can be a vice. It can lead to pride and and, and cruel hearts. And the the zeal the Jews had here was a zeal that was misdirected. Now, it needed to be directed by what? Truth. Knowledge. Here's an epigenosco, a practical truth, an outworking truth in their lives. And this is what they lacked was zeal according to truth. And by the way, this is an important side lesson for all of us. The truth needs to precede everything we're called to do in the Christian life or it'll take us off in the wrong direction. John 4, worship God. But is it any kind of worship? Any zealous kind of worship is acceptable? No. But worship Him in spirit and in truth. So truth guides us in our worship. And uh, we we see as well that uh, other areas of the Christian life, including our zeal, zeal must be directed by by truth. needs to be lit, right, man? You gotta, you gotta, it's got to be lit by truth. And the Jews were zealous. They had great enthusiasm. But even Augustine gives us a warning here. He says, you know, it's better to limp in the right direction than to run all the way as fast as you can out of the way. I mean, that's the idea here. I mean, he, Jews had great enthusiasm about This is a false statement because I need all the righteousness that comes from God and God alone. So they were ignorant that righteousness came from God, didn't come from themselves. Hodge writes, the righteousness of which God was and is the author. The righteousness that only God approves and the one that God accepts and the righteousness which he gives. So the problem wasn't revelation. The problem was that they they just were ignorant, willfully ignorant of what the Bible said about the source of true righteousness. Let me just read you a little bit from Isaiah fifty three. I want to read the rest of it during our our Lord's Supper. But surely he was born. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we were seen. We seemed esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So here we have a Savior that's. You know, he is actually paying for our sins, purchasing for us righteousness, that he perfectly kept the law, and we're going to see. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, that with his wounds we are healed. He's find no room for works, law-keeping, self-merit, effort. All you see there is sin that's being paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's being afflicted. And and that's the greatest need is to come to him by faith. Not of works, but only of righteousness that's appropriated through faith. They had Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. It was there. They had no excuse. Secondly, he prayed for them because they were self-willed and seeking to establish their own. And so the Jews could not understand that they could not establish their own righteousness uh, in but doing it themselves. They they refused to look to the righteousness of Christ. This is the big error that most people fall into when they believe that they can do something. They can do something to further their spiritual well-being with god and if you're wrong on this you're going to be wrong on the whole thing i don't care how zealous you are how many times you go to church i don't care how much you pray how much you read scripture how many bible studies you go to it doesn't matter but if you're locked into thinking that there's something i can do myself to earn merit with god and and to find favor with him and to stand righteous with him you're on the wrong path the great mistake of the Jews was that they embraced the wrong method of justification. They were ignorant of the true way of justification. This implied ignorance about the nature and the character of God. And so they, they didn't realize it all came from God, but what I need to do is trust in Him rather than trying to do it myself. And by the way, this is the fault of many of us, either before we came to Christ, or perhaps some of you who have yet to come to Christ today. I mean, what's the mindset? What's the default position? Usually it goes something like this. I need to try harder if God's going to be happy with me. I need to do more. I need to turn over a new leaf. And if I turn that leaf over, then God will smile and be happy and look to me as if, as if I'm righteous. Oh, I'm not praying enough. i got to pray more. God, I know if I just pray some more, you'll be, you'll be happy and, and, and accept my righteousness. Or go to church. Put money in the offering plate. You know, try harder and try harder and and try to be better. I mean, where's that going to lead you? Well, I'll tell you where it led the Jews to destruction because that is the wrong way to righteousness. The only righteousness that will avail you, standing before a holy and righteous God on judgment day, is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that's been imputed and put to your account. And if you're going to stand there in some rags and robes of your own righteousness, it's not going to work. You're going to fall short. You must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ. Everything else is but filthy rags. You simply need to trust in Christ. They did not understand that Christ is the one that would bring his righteousness to them through his substitutionary death. And it's simply accepted, listening carefully, by faith. Simply accepted by faith alone. Believing and trusting in what Christ has done on behalf of his people. Philippians 3.9 says, And he, be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The sin of not knowing, uh, the ignorance, missing out on God's grace, Simply because you're trying to save yourself will lead you into the pathway of hell. There's a third reason as he prayed for them. He prayed for them because they were self sufficient. It ties in with what I just said. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And they concluded they did not submit to God's righteousness. Instead, they they refused to submit to do things God's way. So what happens? God says to all of us in this room, You want your sins forgiven? You want to go to heaven? You want to have eternal life? You want to be a new person in Christ? Stop trying to save yourself. Trust in my son. Just simply believe in what he's done. That's all, that's it. And you say, Well, I can't. It's too simple. I disagree with that. I believe I've got to get involved and and he's going to help me and cooperate with me and, and make me do better. You're not submitting to God's authority. You become an authority to yourself, an authority to God. If you think you must be righteous to stand before God, and that righteousness is any way connected with you, you're going to stand with with filthy rags before God. We have no righteousness. You have no righteousness. Do you see that? You have none. There's nothing good in you that you can bring before God and say, Accept me. It's going to fall short. He's going to say, My son, he's the righteous one. Trust in him. And his righteousness, you'll be clothed in and be treated as one who is righteous. The ignorance of the Jews was, is common today. It wasn't just their own inability to submit to God's righteousness. It's true to anyone who's in unbelief. Could be there's some here today. You, you truly believe that the only way for you to get right with God is for you to try harder. And I don't know how to say it any clearer than I can, is that it ain't going to work. It's not the way. You've been deceived. You're choosing the wrong way. It's it's not a matter of ignorance. You're, You're hearing the truth. It's coming from God's Word. It's a matter of you submitting to that truth and believing and trusting in Him. The only wrong in the way that they look for righteousness, they look to themselves. And then lastly, let's look quickly at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If we're not saved by trying to keep the rules and regulations and all the law, then the question is then, what's the purpose of the law? Why did God give us a law if it's not to try and keep it? Why did He tell us, you know, that we are to... Uh, not commit adultery, but by being faithful, I'm, I'm going to earn favor with God. He's going to answer that question here in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law and brings righteousness to everyone who believes. Follow me on this. Christ is the end of the law, and he brings righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the end here is, is uh, Christ is the end of the law, has, could have several meanings termination fulfillment or goal uh, I, I like the view that uh, it seems to fit well here that Paul teaches every, other places in the New Testament this that the law is like our teacher or our schoolmaster to teach us what it is to be righteous and so the law says to you love the Lord your God with all your heart soul and mind love your neighbor as yourself the law says uh, six days thou shall uh, shall work, and then the seventh day set aside is as a day of, of unto the Lord. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not uh, steal. Thou shalt not lie. Now those laws, the moral law of God, is given to us as a schoolmaster to take us to the end of ourselves, right up to Christ. I believe that's what He's saying here. And what does that mean? That means, well, okay, well, the law tells me I. I'm not to commit adultery, but i got a fornicating heart. What do I do? Try harder? Do better? Try and turn over a new leaf? No, that heart's still there. That sin's still there. It's going to take you right into hell. But what it is to show you is I can't do this by myself. I'm at the end of myself when it comes to the law. I'm right up to the point of Christ, and the law is taking me right up to Christ, and now I'm looking at him as the one who has perfectly kept the law, the law of God, the only one who's perfectly righteous, the only one who's purchased for me forgiveness of sin on the cross, and now I can't do anything except do what? Trust in him. Trust in Christ. Believe in Christ. And receive his righteousness as my righteousness. Hodge says the Jews erred in seeking justification from the law, for the law was designed not to bring justification, but to lead them to Christ in order that they might be justified through faith. The usual meaning of the word termination here, the law is the end, terminates, and right at the foot of the cross. The law refers to the law of Moses, It's not that Paul meant that there was law righteousness. We have to keep the law to be saved, but to lead us to the cross. The only one who kept the law perfectly, Jesus. And this puts to death all of your efforts of trying to save yourself. This puts to death any any reference of you trying to be a good person. Let me tell you, you can't. If you could be a good person and go to heaven, if you could be a good person and and have your sins forgiven, Christ would have never come into this world. There'd be no need for Christ. Why did Christ come into the world? Because, Because he did for us what we cannot do ourselves. He perfectly kept the law. He paid the price for our sins, the sinless one. And we must be careful we don't take this verse to an unintended extreme. Paul does not mean that the law has been abolished. doesn't mean that the law stopped at the cross, It stopped at Christ, believe in Christ, now go on and live a lawless life. It's not saying that at all. We see that Christ established the law in chapter 3, verse 31 in Romans. He goes on to tell us in Romans 13, 8 through 9 that, Instead of speaking of the laws being, being gone, the law becomes really the, the pathway that we're to walk that leads us to a, a holy life after we're saved. It doesn't save us, but it becomes the very pathway, the, the very expression of who God is and, and how He wants us to live. And, and those who are in Christ who now have the new covenant, their heart beats with joy because they love the law of God now. And they want the law of God to be worked out in their lives by His grace. So we don't live a lawless life as a pathway to righteousness. So let me ask you this question. Are you righteous this morning? Do you have right standing with God? I mean, answer that in your mind, yes or no. That's not a multiple choice question. Do you have right standing with God today? Are you confident that you have right standing with God today? And if the answer is yes, let me ask you the second question. What's that confidence based on? Is it because you're a little bit better today than you were yesterday? Or is it because you're trusting in Christ, in Christ alone, as your righteous Savior? That's why he adds this to everyone that believeth. Everyone. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. Everyone in this room. Salvation comes to everyone. Righteousness comes to everyone who believeth. And that's you. It could be you. If you trust in his son. I'll tell you what, uh, the goal of the law is Christ's righteousness, to bring you to the, feet of the foot of the cross, to drive you to the Savior, to look to His death as your death, to look to His righteousness as your righteousness. This is without knowledge. Keeping the law without faith is also worthless. The righteousness we need is Christ's righteousness. By the Son of God on the cross is passive obedience. Keeping the law of God is active obedience. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And what this does lifts up a gospel of grace, 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 and more grace. Because we're not involved anywhere in the picture. It's all the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. As soon as you start picking around and putting something you did in there to kind of improve yourself with God, you've taken away and robbed grace from salvation. You might be zealous, but you have a false gospel. So how do you get right with God? God through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only righteous one. And let me just encourage some of you that I believe could well be on that treadmill of salvation. Man, you're jogging zealously as fast as you can, thinking maybe, I wonder if I've done enough. Have I tried harder? Have I turned over a new leaf? If I, if I, if I, if I... And there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to earn any righteous favor, merit with God. You will never measure up. But here's the good news. It is a free gift. It's a free gift that comes from God. It comes directly from the work of Christ. It comes as a gift from the righteous one who wants to clothe you in his righteousness so, you have right standing before God, not for anything you have done, but because He's done it all, and you simply have done what? Tr- trusted in Him. And so, Christians, I would encourage you, those, those of you who are in Christ today, rest in Him. Rest in Him. Don't jump back on the treadmill. Don't try to, you know, add to and, well, I know I was saved by grace through faith. And I did believe in Jesus Christ when I accepted Him, but i gotta, I got to keep it going. Yeah, you want to live a holy life. Yes, you want to you live a life that's pleasing to God by, by keeping uh, His law as an expression of your love for Him. But rest in Him. Delight in His law, His work. Not for the sake of your salvation, but live out of faith that he's already put in you by his grace. So the call this snowy Sunday morning is maybe you're like Spurgeon. Maybe God brought you here, and despite the snowstorm, and it was simply to hear this very simple message, stop working, stop trying, stop fretting, and simply bow your knees and trust in Christ, in Christ alone, his work on the cross for your forgiveness, his obedience to the law for your righteousness, and rest in him. Father, we thank you again for bringing us a very simple, simple message, a message of salvation. Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, who are trusting in Him, we we thank You for the gift You've brought us, the delight and the joy it is to know our Creator and Savior and Lord. For anyone here today who is yet, maybe they find themselves on that works treadmill, trying trying to please You, God. Oh, Lord, take them off. Bow their knee before You. And may they come simply believing in Christ and what he's done, and resting in him. For your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.